0: Uh, the topic today is really looking at how uh, how important a good executive benefits program can be to the long term health and stability of our plan sponsor clients. Uh, we will uh, we'll cover some of the uh, major uh, topics that we uh, uh, we touch on when we think about these programs and how they work, uh, and really try and put them in the right perspective as they relate to um, uh, as as they relate to the ability um, to Succeed and thrive moving into the future. Probably a more important topic uh, today than it would have been uh, a month ago when we were all supposed to uh, supposed to be doing this in person. So, um, the first is why should you consider executive benefits programs? For those of you who don't have them, um, there's a couple of key key things that we like to talk about. One is our highly compensated employees are highly compensated for a reason. Um, we, we don't just pay people more money because we like the cut of their hair or where they buy their shoes uh, or, or any superfluous reason. Um, we're paying people more because uh, they are um, uh, the people that are driving revenue. Uh, they are the individuals that are responsible for strategically leading the company. Um, but they are driving significant value. Uh, and that's why we're paying them more money. Uh, this can be a, a, a bit of a challenging conversation because in many of the things that we talk about and think about as it relates to providing benefits uh, are really driven through the lens of let's do something that is equal uh, for everybody. Um, qualified plans tend to be that way. Well, they'll tend to be, they are that way. You have to do proportionally the same amount uh, of contribution and you provide exactly the same amount of savings capacity in a qualified plan to every participant. Um, Group health plans tend to do the same thing, group life, group long-term disability. Um, And uh, what I'm going to speak to directly is why, A, some of those plans are accidentally discriminating against our most highly compensated employees, uh, and B, why we want to use certain programs to actually keep these people uh, in their jobs uh, and happy in their jobs. And that leads into my second bullet. Uh, is you need to manage risk in your business. And one of our biggest risks in our business is that the key people, the folks who drive value, uh, the people that are highly compensated, because again, they're responsible for creating revenue, they're responsible for strategy, uh, they're responsible for leadership, uh, could leave. Uh, That's a big problem when it happens, or uh, if you're in a a growth company, uh, they could, uh, you could be struggling to hire. Um, so the executive benefits programs are, are really about uh, ensuring that your business has the people uh, to, to make it grow and be successful. Uh, and so that's that's a big piece of why you should be thinking about doing this if you're not. Uh, and if you are, why we should make sure that the plans that you're using are tuned to where they should be as it relates to the current market. Um, I One of the Biggest issues that arises that drives the need for these types of programs is the unintended shortfalls that happen in group benefit plans. Um, we don't realize it, but we're frequently discriminating uh, against our most highly compensated accidentally. It's, it's a function of plan design that, that happens with group plans. It's, it's not through any, any desire to be discriminatory, though you have every right if you choose to discriminate against your highly compensated employees. I I always make the statement that um, you you can do it, uh, but it should be an active decision, not an accident of plan design. And too often it's an accident of plan design. And what I'm demonstrating here um, is is that in general, you see that people that make more than $150,000 a year are not gonna successfully retire. Uh, on what they can save in a 401k plan. And I just noticed on my slide, this slide, this line has moved a little bit. It should actually be up here at around the 75% to 85% level. Because when we're looking at a successful retirement, um, in in general, we want to think in terms of a 75 to 85% replacement ratio of the last year's salary. So um, if someone were making, I'll use um, $100,000 because it's easy math, a uh, hundred thousand dollars their last year of work, we would want them to be able to generate 75,000 to $85,000 of income from their uh, investments and properties uh, in retirement moving forward. Um, so that's just a pure planning number. Uh, we want people to be able to save successfully. And as you can see, you know, at $150,000, an individual who is a tremendously good saver. If you and you'll get access to these slides, but all of this basically says here that this 45-year-old individual is the best saver in the history of the world. They are going to put every nickel away they can into a, into their qualified plan. When they get to be 50, they're going to do the catch-up contribution. Um, they're going to get 3% raises every year, uh, and they're going to get a 7% market return and they are going to reach retirement age of 67. So they're 22 years of that kind of tremendous savings. They're gonna reach retirement age of 67 and they're gonna have about a 52% replacement ratio on their last year's salary. So if they're making 150 in that last year, which they're not, this is gonna have grown. Uh, But if they were, they're gonna have a replacement ratio of of a little over $75,000. So this person would walk out uh, having um, the year before they retired, uh, brought home $150,000 before tax, and they're gonna be then trying to live on um, $75,000 uh, before taxes. Um, that's a tough nut to crack. And it, again, it is just simply math uh, and, and what they can save as it relates to um, what they what they have access to in their qualified plan. Uh, and this is true regardless of whether or not we're talking for-profit or not-for-profit because the limits are similar in 403Bs that they are in 401Ks. And uh, you know, honestly, we want to make sure that these folks have an adequate opportunity to save on a pre-tax basis for retirement. The assumption that people who make more money are gonna save more money outside of their 401K is a bit flawed. Uh, we know the research tells us that 70% of Americans, regardless of how much they make, spend everything that hits their checking account. So um, expenses tend to grow to meet uh, the supply of uh, money. Uh, And so the assumption that this person out here who's making 250 is saving more because they're making more is a flawed assumption. Um, That's obviously problematic for the individual. We wanna give them opportunities to successfully retire. Uh, but it's also problematic for us as plan sponsors because people get expensive uh, when they stay. Um, you know, the, the challenge of a delayed retirement is pretty significant. Um, you, you have uh, people who get to age 67 uh, and realize that they are in this bucket and they're 67 and they're, they're staring down the pipe of maybe having 50% saved, but they don't wanna retire on 50% of their last year's um, <clears throat> excuse me, their last year's salary. So they decide they're going to stay for three more years. Well, for the for for you as the employer, as as the sponsor of that 401k plan, that individual staying an extra three years uh, is going to drive up your cost by about nine percent of payroll. Um, that's significant, and there's no magic to why the cost goes up. There, when we get to 67, we're we're actually getting we're getting paid more. Our benefits are more expensive. We're bigger users of the health care benefits, so uh, we're going to drive up the, uh, the cost of those. So it's not just altruism in terms of wanting a good outcome for our plan participant. It's also good business management uh, for us to enable them to save more of their own money to get to a successful retirement because then on the back end, when they get to retirement, they leave when they want to and when we want them to. Um, you know, I don't know anybody, I've yet to talk to um, to anybody at one of my plan sponsors who says, wow, I really wish uh, everybody would stay here until they were 70 or 72. Uh, most of us uh, would like to see um, people retire when they reach an age where where it would be good for them to retire. So, so that's the one thing is the significant cost of delayed retirement. Um, and the other major cost of delayed retirement is the fact that you're going to have people who leave because other people haven't left. So if you think about your, your 45 to 50 year olds who are waiting for that 67 year old to move on to hit retirement age and go do something else so that they can move up the organization. Uh, if they can't do that because we haven't enabled these folks to get out then um, they're going to go seek opportunities other places. Um, This obviously is not our current unemployment environment, um, but but we will get back to this. Um, And what you'll notice here is that most of our HCEs are going to fall on this line, which uh, prior to two months ago was about a 1.8% unemployment rate for folks with a college degree, which is where we get the majority of our highly compensated people. The point of this slide is that if you lose key employees, if you don't retain them, the cost of replacing them is significant, 200 to 400% uh, in terms of direct cost to use an organization if you lose a key employee. So let's, let's go back a couple slides and look at this group. So you've got a couple people in this group who stay the extra three years um, A, we've just driven up direct cost by 9% on them, and then we're going to have two or three people, three or four people, whatever, we'll say two, quit to go seek other opportunities because they can't advance. Let's say that collectively that's $300,000 worth of salary that has left. That's gonna cost us $600 to um, $1.2 million uh, to replace. So $600,000 to $1.2 million, I'm sorry, I did that. No, I did that right, um, that, to replace that, those people that have left because uh, other people stayed. This also makes a good case in general for doing uh, programs like this that are retention based. Everything we're gonna talk about today as it relates to executive benefits creates uh, retention uh, with these key employees who we've already discussed are paid more because they drive the value of the organization. They are the people that create revenue, they drive strategy, they manage the business. Um, Again, they're not highly compensated accidentally. So you want to make sure you're retaining them because not retaining them uh, is expensive. Nobody wants to spend this money that they don't have to. So when we get a key employee, we wanna make sure we keep a key employee for as long as we would like to have them around. Uh, and I'll talk directly to some of the programs that we're going to use to do that uh, as we progress through the presentation. So you know, so absolutely we've talked about that cost of key employees. the The solution there are retention programs, uh, which golden handcuff plans is one way you hear that talked about. Um you'll also hear them referred to as serps. Um, the 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 ability to save extra and I'll, which is typically cons- considered a Non qualified deferred compensation plan. Uh, and again, that could be in the for profit or the not for profit world. All of these things um, become part of your solution uh, for um, not having to replace key employees, said more efficiently, retaining those people that you want to retain uh, because they are the, the, the critical components to long term success for your organization. Another place where we see um, uh, an unintended gap that falls in uh, to that falls upon this group is in our group long-term disability. Uh, in general, most companies have a monthly benefit in long-term disability of between uh, six and uh, ten thousand dollars a month. Now, again, my I apologize. My line has moved a little bit here. This line should actually be up at two hundred, um, but at at $10,000 a month, um, you're covering $200,000 worth of um, a compensation. And I say compensation, not salary, because when we're looking at both of these um, uh, situations, we want to think base and bonus. We, we want to we consider total comp uh, as it relates to this group. Most people in the highly compensated world have a component of their compensation that is variable. Uh, but is something that they live on. So we need to make sure that we're considering that uh, as we look at, um, at, at these situations. So simply put, if you've got a group long-term disability program that is providing $10,000 a month, a monthly benefit for somebody who um, uh, qualifies, um, they are going to get, uh, they're going to cover about $200,000 worth of total compensation. Um, Interesting to note, and most of you know this, but it's worth pointing out that that benefit, because in general it's corporate paid, is a taxed benefit. So that $10,000 a month rapidly turns into, in most jurisdictions, $6,000 or a little less than $6,000 a month because it's taxed when it comes to the employee. So it's getting to this employee also at a time when they're under tremendous stress. Obviously, they're having a long-term disability event, Um, In general, when someone has one of those, they are three years or so. We say 36 to 42 months. So you have an individual who's gone out and you can see as their salary goes up, they are less and less covered. Um, That this monthly amount does not make them whole. So they've either had to go out and insure this risk on their own by buying uh, individual long-term disability, uh, or they're just uncovered. Um, uh, A little statistic for everybody on the call, Uh, one in four of us uh, are going to have a long-term disability event while we're working. You're 60% more likely, this I'm really cheerful to have, you want me around at cocktail parties to talk about these morbidity and mortality numbers. Um, You're 60% more likely to need long-term disability insurance during your working life than you are to die. Um, So this is really something that we want to evaluate we want to make sure we've looked at and We want to make sure we know why we are doing what we are doing as it relates to our highly compensated employees, because accidentally discriminating against them here can have catastrophic consequences if one of them goes out uh, on a disability. Take this person who's making three fifty. If they go out and they're trying to run their household on $6,000 a month, Um, when they have been running their household on what they can bring home from a $350,000 a year salary, uh, they are going to struggle. They're gonna come back after three years and they're going to have mortgaged their house, uh, spent their 401k uh, money, because they're gonna have invaded that to keep uh, body and soul whole. They're going to have invaded their 529 plans. They're gonna come back to you uh, in financial shambles. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for you. Uh, as the employer and it's really not good for them as the employee. And so this is one of those unintended shortfalls that we want to address. Uh, And it's simple to address this. Um, It's not not a hard, uh, it's not a hard problem to solve. Um, I went too far there. Um, It's literally just making sure that we carve out the people that are adversely affected. So in this case, we would would look at everybody over $200,000 a year. And we would either offer on a company paid or a voluntary benefit, an opportunity to buy up long-term disability insurance. Um, And worth noting, everything I'm talking about here are discriminatory programs. Um, In fact, we have to discriminate by statute. Um, So we are able to have a tremendous amount of flexibility in how we deliver these because they do not have to be delivered in a uniform way to everybody who's in the program. Uh, In general, you're talking about only being able to to service about 15% of your uh, employee base. So if you're a 300 person company, um, we would typically see about 45 people uh, that would participate in an executive benefit program. Um, Sometimes we get a little bigger than that because of the nature of the firm. It could be a little top heavy, but in general, the top hat rules uh, keep us um, in, the, uh, in the 15 to 20% range of the total population. So in that 45, let's stay with that 300 person company example. In that 45, you could have two distinct groups. You could have a group that are your, your C-suite uh, and executive leadership that you're going to do company paid after tax for long-term disability uh, and um, who you're going to have a retention plan for. And then you could have voluntary for um, the other 20 people uh, that that fall into that same group where you're gonna give them access, but you're not necessarily gonna pay for it. So we have a tremendous amount of flexibility in how we put these plans together uh, because they're discriminatory and because we literally have the ability to discriminate uh, infinitely down to one individual. Uh, You can carve a plan out for just one person uh, that, that you need to retain or recruit or whatever is driving the decisions around that um and so when you look at what we're delivering and and I, i feel like i missed a slide there oh yeah no here it is the group life insurance um the the other place the third place that we have this unintended shortfall uh that we have these um uh accidental discrimination points is in group life a group life frequently caps somewhere between um, 50,000 and 50,000 in death benefit, and I'm talking death benefit here. 50,000 in death benefit to around 200,000 in death benefit. Uh, it caps it somewhere in that range because 50 is what you can actually do corporate paid and deliver a tax-free benefit. Um, after that, it becomes a, uh, a taxable event for everything over 50,000 in death benefit. There's ways to address that in terms of how it's paid for. But if you're the CEO, CFO, uh, executive leadership, top sales guy, and you're making $350,000, $450,000 a year, optically, a, a group life uh, program that only delivers a $200,000 death benefit um, it just is, does not appear to be that much of a benefit. Um, you know, We encourage people to really consider at least getting the one-time salary uh, for your highly compensated and uh, potentially getting, getting the same type of um, uh, salary uh, multiplier that you have for uh, rank and file employees. So if it's <clears throat> 2x salary up to 200, why wouldn't we then do 2x salary for our highly compensated who, as I've stressed a couple of times, are the, uh, the value generators and creators at your organizations. So um, does it, and this one I'm not as passionate about as I am long-term disability because life insurance is really not something that gets used all that often when people are working. Um, the reason that term life insurance is cheap is because people don't die while they're working. Uh, but uh, you do. I do think that everybody should think about it uh, and um, and and analyze whether or not they want to proportionally offer significantly less. Um, visible benefit to their HCEs and they're offering to their uh, rank and file employees. So when we look at the solutions um, that we deliver, um, you know there's when you're looking at retirement completion, so that's ensuring that people have the ability to save on their own uh, their own money uh, to get a, to get to a successful retirement. This is what you hear referred to as nonqualified deferred compensation. Um, that, that falls under for, for, for our for-profit client companies, that's uh, 409A, uh, executive bonus plans, which is an after-tax method of saving on a, uh, on a, on a regular basis for retirement. Um, and executive bonus plans really function for highly compensated people, very similar to an uncapped off account. So they put in money after tax that then grows tax-free, uh, until they, they access it and then is, uh. They can access it um, tax-free at a later date. And then in the not-for-profit space, uh, these are 457 plans, uh, which extend the pre-tax savings uh, for HCEs at a not-for-profit by an additional $19,000 a year. Non-qualified deferred comp in the for-profit space, uh, you can enable people to save um, zero to 100% of their base and bonus on a pre-tax basis. Um, we don't encourage 100% because you still have to pay for benefits and FICA and FUTA and other things, uh, but, it, but it, is, it is available there. Uh, in terms of retention plans, when we're talking about what do we want to do to lock down these people, and what I, ask, what I ask you to do when you think in terms of retention plans is if you were to close your eyes and think about the people that if they walked into the office on a Monday morning and they quit, it would ruin your week. Uh, And if they quit and they're going to work for a competitor, it would ruin your month. Um, Those are people that we want to have in retention plans. Um, And retention plans are, and the SERPs and the 457Fs are, again, the SERP is in the for-profit world, uh, and the 457F is in the not-for-profit world. Um, These are really the golden handcuff plans. This is employer dollars deployed into a program that vests over time. Um, This is a fantastic way to align the behavior of your key key performers with the goals and objectives of your organization because you can tune the discretionary bonus that's gonna be put into the retention plan to what you want from a corporate objectives perspective. That could be a sales goal, It could be growth goals. It could be corporate top line or bottom line goals. It could be margin. Uh, It can be anything you want it to be. And it can be different for different people. You could build classes in these retention plans. You could have individuals. It can be as simple or as complex as you want it to be. Uh, We literally have pen and paper and can sit down and draft out these programs. And same thing for the retirement completion. Um, to to really, really lock in on the long-term goals and objectives of your organization and how we get these key performers to to align with that. Um, So a traditional SERP design would be say, we're gonna take a percentage of salary every year because we want a little bit of charge going into the battery each year, and then a bigger discretionary bonus to be granted at the end of each year based on whatever the performance metrics, the key performance indicators, We've designed for that individual, uh, and each year we start a new vesting schedule. Um, pretty common right now uh, is three and five-year rolling vesting schedules in these programs, uh, so that each year you start a new three-year. and At the end of every third year, you've got a, a grant that's fully vested, um, and then a lot of them have a long-term uh, kicker that you know. Say you make ten years or fifteen years, there's a there's an even bigger bonus that that becomes. Uh, available to the individual. And so the the beautiful thing about this is money only gets paid if goals and objectives are met, uh, and you're retaining key employees. If they leave, they don't get it. Um, If they don't uh, hit the benchmarks and the key performance indicators, they don't get it. So uh, these are uh, very cost-effective ways to uh, retain uh, key employees. Uh, the retirement completion plans, again, very cost effective because with the exception of admin uh, expenses, all you're doing is enabling people to uh, save their own money. They're deferring their own compensation. You don't have to put anything in from a plan sponsor perspective. So again, very, um, very uh, cost effective as it relates to not adding a lot of additional benefit costs uh, to, uh, to the company. Uh, to get some tremendous benefits for both the company and the plan participant. Um, The accidental discrimination that happens in executive long-term disability and executive life, uh, there is typically a direct cost there. Uh, You can do it on a voluntary basis if you like where you just are providing access for folks. Uh, In general, we see some portion of of long-term disability and executive life company paid uh, because it is a benefit. And these, again, the long-term disability is is an essential, anybody who has not looked at it, uh, I highly encourage you to look at it to make sure that you, you don't have a situation where somebody goes out, is undercovered, and it crushes them financially. Um, and then executive life, again, just optically, we want to make sure that we've examined uh, and are, are providing a commensurate benefit uh, or not, but if we're not doing it, again, if you're gonna discriminate against your HCEs, so let's make that a conscious decision, not an oversight or an accident of our plan design. So these are the three primary solutions that we deal with. There are lots of different ways uh, that we get to these uh, in terms of what are the programs and 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 what are the uh, what are the the solutions that back it up. But conceptually, uh, this is how we're going to come at uh, retirement uh, retirement completion uh, retention plans and and reversing or at least addressing the accidental discrimination. That happens in some of our group plans. <clears throat> so let's talk about the mechanics and what they actually look like. So here's a retention plan, and I outlined this a little bit. You've got an employer discretionary contribution uh, that is that is based on whatever you want to base it on, whatever the key performance indicators are, uh, whatever percentage of salary you want to do. Uh, these are absolutely retention and reward for for. Key, to recruit key talent and retain key talent. Um, you have complete freedom to have unique plans for each individual. Uh, it has no impact on your existing plans. This does not do anything to your testing on your qualified plans. It is a non-qualified benefit, so it does not in any way interact with any of your group plans, your qualified plan, uh, zero. Um, you can do pretty much what you want here. Uh, what it does for the employee that's, that's really nice is there's no current taxation uh, on any of the contributions. Uh, both the non-qualified deferred compensation, 457Bs, uh, are, are only taxed upon distribution. Um, in the, and by the way, in the not-for-profit world, and I didn't mention this, in the not-for-profit world, these retention plans are referred to as 457Fs. Um, There's also a program out there that we're seeing come into use more often uh, in the not-for-profit world um, that is called Loan Regime Split Dollar. Uh, There's an entire seminar that we could do on that. That can get a little complicated, but know that there is a way to do a retention plan in the not-for-profit world that uh, has a completely neutral impact uh, on the plan sponsor, if if anybody listening is in the not-for-profit world. Um, so these plans for the employee, um, uh, they, they, they just have no impact on them until they distribute. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the asset. In general, these plans are unfunded liabilities on the books of the plan sponsor that we are going to recommend that you finance, but they, they set up that way. We're going to recommend that you set an asset aside to make good on the commitment. Uh, but just know that there, when we get into a design conversation around this, there are conversations to be had about the asset that's used to hedge this liability. And then when it comes time to distribute the benefit, it can come out in a lump sum, annual installments. Uh, and there can be, if there is a uh, particular financing strategy used that involves insurance, there can be survivor benefits if somebody uh, dies while they're in the plan but um, has not fully vested or is not using it yet. Uh, but again, that's a that's a whole nother deeper conversation and not a level of detail uh, that I think we need to get to today. Um, so looking at the retirement program, so this is supplemental retirement. This is, and remember if I go back to the vernacular, you will have heard this referred to as non-qualified non-qual, deferred compensation. Um, in, in, and it could be a 457B uh, if you're in the not-for-profit space. But for the employer, it's again, great way to uh, reward and retain. You're giving people an opportunity to save their own money. uh, And you'll see there's a lot of options in terms of what can be contributed. Uh, The the employee can contribute their base compensation, their bonus. The employer can put in a match or discretionary bonus. And if you're in a world in your qualified space where you are uh, potentially gonna fail testing and provide refunds to your HCEs, uh, you can structure it in such a way that any refunded uh, money flows into the non-qualified deferred compensation plan so that it's not exposed to taxation. Um, most senior executives are annoyed uh, when, they're, when, a, when a company fails testing and there's a return of money that they thought they were putting away for retirement. Even if it's at a de minimis amount, uh, they don't tend to like it. Um, Neat thing about these programs, and one of the things I like to stress is this right here, this in-service account. You have the opportunity in a a deferred compensation setting to establish an in-service distribution account, meaning an account that is just gonna distribute at some point in the future. Um, We see these used frequently by participants to fund college expenses, uh, the future purchase of an automobile, the future purchase of a retirement home, um, but they, they have the ability uh, to, to save um, in, a, in a designated account for a year they want it to distribute. Um, and then there's separation of service accounts that are basically for, we used to call these retirement, but, but many people don't think in terms of retirement, but these accounts are paid to whenever I'm gonna leave the company, this is gonna distribute. These in-service accounts are paid to, I know that eight years from now, uh, my daughter is gonna start college. I would like to save money on a pre-tax basis to fund that. And that's gonna distribute in 2028 because it's 2020 uh, or 2029 or whenever. Um, so so those, are, those are a really nice feature of these that provide your plan participants a a really unique way to save for future events uh and as you'll see what 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 we have here is and it it touches on it right here there's no penalty for distribution so that individual that is going to start that college savings account right now uh, at age 40 is going to have that come out at age 48 uh, and unlike uh, pre-tax savings done in a qualified plan there's no there's no penalties on that. It just flows out. It's W-2 income. It gets taxed, and you spend it for what you want. The other nice thing about it is, let's say you get out there 10 years in the future, eight years in the future, and you don't need the money for whatever it was you saved it for. You're not going to buy the retirement home now. Uh, your, your child has gotten a full scholarship. You don't need the money for college. Um, you've decided to, to do something else. Whatever it is, you have two choices. You can redefer that and let it ride for another five years, growing tax-free for five more years, uh, or uh, you can take it and spend it on whatever you want. Um, the, the idea that it's uh, on what it's being spent for is just in your head, there's nothing that locks this down, so you're not as bound up by it as you are with some of the other savings methodologies. Um, similar to what I talked about in the retention plans, there are options uh, that we discuss uh, as a part of plan design as to how we're going to finance uh, the liability that's created by these deferrals. Uh, and then there's, there's options for how uh, the benefits flow out on the backside. There's a lot, all of this really is plan design questions that, that we go through uh, as, 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 you, as you work on designing the plan to tune it to your specific uh, organization. Um, After tax plans are yet another way Um, This is the grandfather of all executive benefits programs. Um, It it provides, again, a way to uh, reward, retain, and recruit key talent. Um, They have the the flexibility of being um, portable. um, and, And basically, these programs just take advantage of the fact that premiums paid into life insurance, whole life insurance policies, permanent life insurance policies grow tax-free and can be accessed tax-free forever so um, you'll i said it earlier uh, fundamentally uh, for our highly compensated folks who want to build a uh, a tax preferred asset for retirement and many of them do because the day they retire is typically their highest marginal tax rate ever from a w-2 perspective so having an asset that they can access tax-free for a couple of years uh, is not a bad thing while their marginal tax rate drops. And if you go back and look at, look at our options for distribution, you know, this annual installment, they can, they can tune this so that rather than take a big lump summing at W-2, they're gonna let this distribute over five years. And as this distributes, their tax rates dropping, so they're not paying a lot. And part of the way they're gonna, they can make that happen is by having access to one of these that they can draw down on for living expenses on a tax-free basis. So again, it, it, there's this is a uh, a program uh, that is fulfilled through the use of uh, permanent life insurance and multiple options there. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of different benefits, supplemental retirement income, there's survivor benefits. Um, we are seeing uh, an, a, a real interest in using these programs to get to long-term care coverage. Um, there's some uh, there's opportunity to create a rider on these programs that, that does nice things there. Uh, and that's, that's probably becoming the most common question uh, in the after-tax supplemental retirement program, 162 bonus, executive bonus space, uh, is, is this question around, can we get some long-term care in there? It's a very good way to address that issue if it's coming up uh, in your HCE space um so considerations that we have when we start to b- build these programs and do the design obviously ownership structure is one of the things we look at um if you go back a decade or so ago they used to say that you only wanted to do these in c corps and yada yada i will tell you quite honestly that was because most people in the business were trying to sell life insurance as opposed to solve problems by building good plans uh and it was easier from do that in c corps i am unconcerned with corporate structure except for uh, making sure that we understand it so that we're designing a plan that works uh, for you as a plan sponsor and for your highly compensated employees. Not-for-profit, LLCs, LPs, C-Corps, all face the same issues as it relates to uh, retaining and recruiting key talent. Um, I've yet to walk into a firm uh, uh, of any nature and and had anybody disagree with me on the statement that the number one asset for the organization walks in and out of the door, walks in the door in the morning and out of the door in the afternoon. And so long as that's true, these programs have a place uh, and should be something that you're considering as to how you ensure that you have the key people in place to grow and thrive. So we look at that, we look at employee budget um, in general, uh, Many of these plans are neutral uh, to just marginally uh, marginal cost uh, because with uh, with the retirement completion programs, people are deferring their own money, so you're really only footing the bill for um, for some uh, admin cost. Uh, a lot of times on the executive bonus space, you're you're actually letting senior people reconstrue uh, bonus into a different spot than it would normally go. Instead of having it come cash to them, uh, it's going to be sent into a different program. So it's building an asset for them, um, you know, things of that nature. So the, while they're the, by no means are these programs free, they are not as expensive as many people seem to hold in their heads um, that they are. Um, and they're very, very, when you look at the fact that they are meant to align. Uh, and keep your most highly compensated people uh, at the firm and aligned with the firm's long-term goals and objectives. Uh, I would posit that it's probably uh, the cost is, is truly not the issue. Uh, and then employee retention. Um, you know that these are, if employee retention is, is important, then this conversation is one that we need to make sure that that you're having.